Welcome to the Coffee Entrepreneur. Your breath is sweet, weak, your eyes lie, two jewels in the sky. Your back is straight, your hair is smooth on the pillow where you lie. This podcast will bring you insights into the world of coffee, entrepreneurship, and life's lessons. Your loyalty is not to me, but to the stars above. This episode is brought to you by Espressology, free the coffee entrepreneur. Lesson four, the coffee entrepreneur, look after your suppliers. In the first year of this new business, I managed to double the turnover. In the second year, I doubled it again. In the third year, I doubled it yet again. That was an 800% growth rate in just three years. How did I do this? When I originally took charge of my little garage business, instead of doing the deliveries myself, I hired a young, hard-working mum to do the deliveries for me, and I focused on sales. I actually remember thinking that I still had no real idea how to go about selling. I was innately shy and still found it too much of a challenge to even walk into a cafe and introduce myself. Such was my aversion to rejection. This is not uncommon, and many people don't like sales for this reason. I kept trying to learn how to sell professionally. My father-in-law gave me a little sales training leaflet, one of which I remember said, sell the sizzle, not the sausage. In other words, get people emotionally engaged with what you are offering. Involve as many of their senses as possible. For example, I would always open a vacuum pack of fresh ground coffee right in front of the prospect while I was talking. This allowed the incredibly complex and alluring aroma of freshly roasted coffee to fill the workplace for hours after I'd finished talking. This unique aroma is one of the wonders of the natural world. It's so complex that it still can't be replicated artificially. I purchased a set of sales training cassette tapes by an American sales trainer by the name of Tom Hopkins. I listened to those tapes continuously and even memorised some of the motivational prompts that were designed to help salespeople cope with rejection, some of which I still recall on cue to this day. I never see failure as failure, but only as the opportunity to practice my techniques and perfect my performance. I never see failure as failure, but only as the negative feedback I need to change course in my direction. I also learned from another sales training guy called Alan Peace, an Australian body language expert who used to be an insurance salesman. In one of his books, he analysed every individual word in a sales presentation sentence and the impact each word had on the listener. This helped me train myself for phone prospecting. To overcome my shyness, I figured I could at least make phone calls first to prearrange a sales appointment. I used to spend the afternoon making telephone calls, setting up appointments for the following day. The palms of my hands would get sweaty and I would often procrastinate, but I stuck at the task in spite of my discomfort. I found that when I walked in to meet the prospect the very next day, they would at least recall our phone conversation and it would be a much warmer interaction than if I had just walked in cold off the street. This made it easier for me to cope with meeting new people. I learned some very valuable lessons in this process. I came to realise that most people are pretty nice if you are polite and considerate towards them. The few people who are obnoxious are inevitably people who are not that nice, and you probably didn't need to waste time with them anyway. In the end, I could almost guarantee if you gave me a list of 100 contacts, I could make an appointment with about 99, and the one I didn't make an appointment with 
would most likely be because I didn't think it was worth wasting time with someone so unpleasant. My phone patter would go along the lines of, Can I please speak to whoever looks after ordering coffee for your company? The auto response from the busy receptionist was, They are not in at the moment, or they are busy at the moment. I would reply, That's okay. Could you possibly tell me who it is that might be responsible for ordering your coffee? They would give me this name, or if they didn't, I'd guess it was probably them and would say, as it happens, I'll be coming your way in the next day or so and was wondering if I could just pop by and leaving a couple of free coffee samples for you to try. Would that be okay? Invariably, they were curious enough to try a free sample. And if they still hadn't given me a name, I would politely ask, can I possibly ask your name? They would usually give me their name and I would introduce myself and say thanks and use their name. Well, I look forward to seeing you tomorrow morning. Bye and I'd use their name again, and hang up. I'd make about eight appointments in an afternoon and make sure they were all as near each other as possible, and then call on them the following morning while my conversation was still fresh in their minds. As soon as I saw the person I had spoken to, they almost immediately recalled our conversation and me as a result. It meant that there was already some rapport and familiarity established. It enabled me to get around my inherent shyness, and it was an effective exercise in getting in front of new customers. I soon learned that getting new customers was a numbers game. Put yourself in front of enough qualified new prospects and eventually one will want to become a customer. Subsequently, I worked with another guy, George Greener, who had built his business up by sheer numbers of cold calling. He would simply spend a day personally delivering product lists to offices, starting at the top of an office tower and working his way down through each floor and office. He demonstrated some of the same simple, polite manners that I was using, like sensitivity to the other person's situation and perception as to whether they were busy or under pressure. If someone showed interest, George would ask for a piece of their company's stationery, like a with compliment slip, with their business name printed on it. He would then ask the person's name and write it down on the slip of paper he had been given, along with whatever details they may have been interested in, and then he would be back in touch with the information they needed. In a very quick 60-second interaction, he collected a lot of useful information that helped him tailor his presentation to suit exactly what the prospect was interested in and needed. After doing this about 100 times a day, I learned to overcome my shyness even more still by realising that people are happy to talk to you if you present yourself face-to-face in a polite and considerate way. I can now walk into pretty much anywhere and introduce myself in an appropriate way and talk to pretty much anyone. This gives you a lot of confidence in dealing with people everywhere. I also learned that professional salesmanship is actually more a matter of being like an honest consultant rather than acting like the arch-typical rude and pushy salesman. It's almost a matter of diagnosing what somebody actually needs, much like a doctor might diagnose what medicine a patient requires by asking about their symptoms. Once you've figured out what's important to your client, If you have some professional solutions and you are honest about what you don't actually know, people are reassured and can be confident and will relax and put their trust in you. It is this universal key of putting the other person's interests first and establishing rapport that actually builds not just business relationships, but every human relationship. It is in fact true that it's not what you know, but who you know that counts. Personal relationships based on trust are important. Good personal relationships are based on trust and honesty, and on putting yourself in the other person's shoes, understanding what is important to them and what they need. Good business relationships are exactly the same. It sounds blindingly obvious, but it's amazing how many businesses stuff this up 
as they offer either ordinary, horrible, or indifferent user experiences. The business that makes the customer feel highly valued by understanding their needs and wants and structures their behaviour based on this will do well. This is the same in a marriage relationship or in any relationship for that matter. It's even true on a spiritual level. Jesus Christ said, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is simply a relationship, knowing someone, not something. The goal, though, is to be always continually working at improving our relationships. One of the things I managed to do to cement these first few new customer relationships was to really impress them with the level of prompt service they received. I realised I couldn't maintain the intimate personal contact that Val had provided on a twice-weekly basis if I was to grow the business as my partners wanted. This personal touch is extremely important to any business. It is a pragmatic matter, though, of tailoring it to fit the constraints of the time you can afford and the value of the customer. Because I initially worked out of an upstairs room in my brother's premises, just a few short minutes from Sydney's central business district, it didn't take long to drive to see my customers. One of the first customers I got on board was a nearby advertising company in North Sydney. I had been listening to my sales tapes that taught the principle about new customers being a numbers game, as well as being a relationship game, and if you kept putting yourself in front of enough qualified prospects in the right way, in the end a certain percentage would become customers. I didn't really know if this was true or not until I tried it. I remember overcoming my awkward shyness and calling in on this prospect based on persistently maintaining my call-out activity and I wound up with a prestigious advertising firm as a new customer. It was a great breakthrough for my self-confidence. I also learned about referrals, particularly from Tom Hopkins. If someone I knew recommended that I go and talk to a prospect, and they gave me a name, then the success rate of that lead becoming a customer was much higher. In fact, with my cold phone prospecting, using, for instance, a Sydney commercial property news list of commercial premises that had just been leased, I would get a success ratio of about 10 to 1. That is, for every 10 people I saw face-to-face, I would on average gain one as a new customer. But whenever I was given the name of someone to talk to by a mutual acquaintance who knew the person, my success ratio would improve to an average of about 2 in 1. This again is about the potency of relationships and trust. Because the prospect has some confidence in their relationship with the person who referred you, and because it's more likely to be a timely call, the success rate is better. The power of the referral is well known and obvious to professional salespeople, and it makes you way more efficient. I would only have to make two phone calls and two appointments per day, and I had more time for the other areas of the growing business that were demanding my attention. This is one of the classic cases of working smarter, not harder. But when the referred leads dried up, there was no substitute for the hard work of cold lead generating, which is always better than doing nothing. I also learned that advertising companies back in the 1980s depended on same-day door-to-door couriers to deliver artwork speedily for their clients' approval. I started using these same-day couriers as my emergency backup delivery system. Occasionally, an office might have used more coffee than usual and run out prior to an important company board or client meeting. The manager responsible for ordering coffee would often be so busy they wouldn't wouldn't have time to even run down to the nearest shop and buy a replacement. If I got a call like this, I would simply say, no problem. And for an extra emergency delivery fee, I would get the coffee to them that day. Once they agreed, I would immediately call the door-to-door courier, type out an invoice to enclose with a carton of coffee, race downstairs, pick up a freshly packed carton of coffee and stick the invoice on with the address. 
and invariably the courier would turn up just as I was finishing getting everything ready. It would take the courier about 10 minutes to drive across the Sydney Harbour Bridge and drop the carton of fresh coffee on the poor, harried office manager's desk. All this was done within a half an hour and way before drones. I would often get a return phone call from the Harry office manager in sheer amazement at how quickly the coffee had turned up. It would be their professional reputation at stake if there was no coffee for the company meeting. I made them look good with my service, and the relief they felt kept them as very loyal customers. In addition, they were then more likely to refer their friends and acquaintances to me, which further increased my number of referral leads. I really loved surprising and impressing customers with this simple, quick delivery. It helped build my little business, no doubt about it. Who knows what is going to be possible with drone deliveries in the near future? You can bet there will be opportunities there somewhere. After two years of rapid expansion, I employed my first sales employee, Scott Jones. Scott and I had grown up in the same suburb in Sydney, along with hordes of other baby boomers in the burgeoning suburbia of Australia. We had both played rugby for the same club and knew each other as a result, and he was keen to try his hand in a new business. I was so naive that I hadn't even planned to organise a desk for Scotty. He ended up bringing in his own school homework desk with him, still complete with a study map of the world on top. Even though it turned out Scotty wasn't necessarily cut out for sales back then, he stuck at it and was very hardworking and reliable. Scotty and I were destined to work together for another 10 years or so, and we remained good friends more than 35 years later. Not long after this, I negotiated to buy a small coffee racing business in Harbord Road, Brookvale, a suburb close to the northern beaches of Sydney. They were selling Rombout's coffee under licence from Belgium. The previous owner of this operation, a guy called Tony, had purchased a small 5kg roaster and the main part of the business consisted of producing one cup drip filter coffee. This is a bit like the one service espresso capsule so prevalent now, except that it was filter coffee. Rombout still has a strong presence in Belgium where it started and in the Netherlands and the UK. Tony was very nervy and jumpy, as if he was continually stressed about some unknown problem. As we went around his factory doing the final count of his inventory for the valuation, he became impatient, and long after we had settled everything, we found some extra stock that he had missed in his haste. This was a good lesson about hastening slowly. Even though this appears to be an oxymoron, even when you want to get something completed quickly, don't take shortcuts. Be diligent and work through the tedious details. It often pays off in the long run. With the addition of this new small company, our business had doubled yet again, and so that achieved the 800% growth in three years. It also enabled Scotty to move into managing the production side of the business, as we now had coffee racing equipment to operate, and we also had to operate the only one-cup filter filling unit in Australasia. Scott was naturally suited to production, but the filter mating equipment was quite unique and rather quirky. He cut each filter paper in a circle, sealed it to the base of a plastic cylinder, dosed 7 grams of ground coffee and then cut another filter paper circle that sealed the ground coffee inside. But the machine had an odd number of stations set up on the circular platform, so that made it almost impossible to align the filter paper when it was cut and sealed. Before long, Scotty was starting to appear a bit nervy and jumpy and stressed, somewhat like the previous owner. The problem was actually the finicky nature of the equipment. Scotty, though, with his dependable, Trojan-like stoicism, somehow managed to keep the factory running while I remained focused on sales. We had absorbed some new customers that were a new market to us. 
major Australian department stores, David Jones and Meyer, or Grace Brothers as it was then, were selling the one cup coffee products on their shelves. And so a new learning curve began as I had to figure out how to service and build retail sales. I must say, I didn't succeed very well with this part of the business, but it did ultimately, many years later, lead to my immersion into the retail world of the barista and espresso coffee. David Jones is one of the oldest and largest chains of upscale stores in Australia, and they were very good payers for us. We received payments within about seven days of delivering our goods. It certainly made us look upon them favourably, and we would go out of our way to make sure we filled their orders as a priority. This is a really good example of how business relationships work well. When the supplier works hard to fulfil the orders on time and the customer pays on time, there is more time spent on positive, productive and creative ideas and less time wasted on unproductive conversations and frustrations. You become more irreplaceable. It frees people up to improve things and it is a far more enjoyable lifestyle for all concerned. It's very simple and effective and is a much more satisfying way to operate. So you spent quite a bit of time um, in your early stages learning, practicing skills, uh, practicing your sales skills. That's so important for anyone for their growth, you know, if they want to achieve something. You know, whether you're in business for yourself or whether you're happy being um, an entrepreneur, as we talked about a few episodes ago, You've got, you've always got to um, practice those weaknesses, and the fact that at such a young stage in your business and your life, you managed to work out what your weaknesses were, you went and sourced the materials, and you just you practice them. How how often did you practice these new skills that you were trying to acquire? I was doing it every day at work. Yeah, I mean that was the. It's, it's interesting with sales because we all. When you think of it in terms of just being relationship and having good relationships, then it takes all the sort of awkward, negative part of it out. You know, I mean, still no one likes being rejected, and that's completely natural. And I guess there's natural extroverted people who they just don't care about rejection. I mean, <laughs> it comes to the point where they can be psychopathic, but, you know, there's certainly extroverted people who – just brush that off and just just doesn't affect them. They're straight. They're, they're craving conversations with people anyway, and they just want to be talking to people. That's that's the nature of their personality. So they fit into that role much more easily. They just have to be. You just have to make sure that they round out their uh, people skills and they're, that they're following through on everything that they say. So they're not just you know, making promises and then not coming through. You know. Yeah. That's, uh, that's interesting that you mentioned handling rejection because actually one of the things that I sort of pulled out from that, that chapter, that lesson was you know, how to handle re- rejection and you also threw in some words introvert and extrovert yeah. um, and, and there are also sort of notes that I've made through reading the book. You mentioned that you were a shy person. Are you introverted? I haven't done a... You know, do, do you of, feel that you're an introvert? Oh, I think, I think I, yeah, naturally I... I tend that way. It's you know, like obviously you can do a personality analysis. Yeah, and you're everybody's a mix of different stuff. Omniverts. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but definitely, you know, my wife, for instance, is way more social than I am. Yeah. I, I will much more be. I'll be much more likely just to want to stay at home and 
do my stuff at home and not not go out and socialise. So yeah, by default, I tend to be more introverted. In that okay. Way. So yeah. as as an introvert, how did you in those early stages while you were learning these new sales skills and these um, this new world of rejection? You know, 10, 10 and one. It's not a bad conversion rate at all. I mean, anyone would take that any day in business. But how did you handle, cope, and improve working with rejection in that sales environment? Your motivation's a really interesting thing, isn't it? Because we we've talked about that a bit. The stick and the carrot. Mm. So the stick was, you know, the the downside or the the punishment would have been a failure of of not um, getting to the goal that I needed to get to um, was I wouldn't be able to look after my wife and kids. So that's a pretty big sort of stick to sort of motivate you to get out and do something. And the carrot, of course, is the, you know, success and and then being able to provide and, and, and have the resources to do some nice things and some good things. But the the motivation is having the goal in front of you. So it's amazing how you can, when you become goal-focused, um, goal-oriented, it's interesting how, you know, and I found that in sports. So from the age of five onwards playing competitive rugby, um, you can put up with a lot of pain in training, <laughs> in, you know, physical contact and combat, mm-hmm. you know, on the field. You, you put up with a, a lot of um, discomfort in disciplining yourself to achieve a goal, which is just winning the competition or winning the game. So it's the same kind of process in sales. If you've, you've got a goal that you set yourself, um, then you can you, – because you, it's, it's the whole way we're oriented as human beings too. We, we're actually – we're meant to have a focus and a point and a direction in our lives. So then, then once we've got that other, other extraneous stuff that is more uncomfortable or unpleasant, Tends to be less in our consciousness because we're actually we're not we're not focused on it. We're we're focused on the positive, you know, carrot that we're we're shooting for. Mm. So that whole motivation of is um is just a it's a discipline. And um, I look if you look at someone like say Sassistic, you know, the from owner coffee. Yep, I've got a lot of admiration for Sasa, but he was a competitive sportsman as well, and and he applied those same skills to the competitive. I feel like he would be a soccer player, like football. No, no, he was a handball player. Oh wow! Yeah, that's a physical yeah, game. He, he played the Olympics. He represented Australia. No way! That's yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. a cool. No, that's sport. a great story. I got a lot of admiration for what he's done. But what he and he's done taken those same sports skills of having a, a goal to win, uh, and he applied that to the barista competitions, which is the same thing I did back in the day. Uh, I wanted to win that competition, that world barista competition with. A brister that I had under my, you know, tutelage, and uh, he was the brister himself. But he's created out of that uh, a mindset that's goal oriented, and then he's now taken that from sport to coffee competitions to business, which is a similar thing to what I've done, I guess. And um, and he's got a really successful business as a result. You know, just to segue off a little bit there, and I just want to touch back on your football career and sort of looking at the personality behind that. You start at the age of five. You're playing rugby union or rugby league? Rugby union, yeah. Okay. Um, obviously, there's the physical component to rugby, which is brutal. Yep. Um, you know, as you said, you can you can brush that off. You can push through that pain, whether it be running kilometres or, or whatever it is to achieve something. Are you competitive 
Are you highly competitive? Yes. When you drop a ball, how do you feel? Uh, well, when when you to take rugby as the example, you always make mistakes. Everybody, there's no perfect player. So the really the really great champions just immediately just block it and move on. So it's that same process of okay, you don't dwell on the mistake. Mm. Everybody makes them. The best thing you got to then focus on the next successful thing you have to do. So you just not that you block it out, you just move on straight away. And um, and you're trying to think about the next good thing you can do instead who, of the mistake you've just made. Who taught you that? I mean, that must have been throughout your your whole football team, that sort of mantra of, you know, there's no perfect player. It's okay if you make mistakes because I sort of look at sporting teams that I've been involved with mm. in the last few years or, or even throughout my life and it was, a little, it was very different. That's why I sort of got out of teen sports for a while too is because you get to a certain point and if you make a mistake, you know, that, there's no team camaraderie around that. Mm. I feel like there was a lot of, you made a mistake, you suck, mm. you're bringing the team down mm. rather than it sounds like what you guys had was something pretty pretty special and might have been unique. It could have been to do with the time um, time period as well. No, no, I think it was really special. My, my dad was actually our junior coach and um, I was actually captain of the team, although... Not typical. Yeah, and that, <laughs> that's that's exactly the, the natural reaction that everybody would have. But there was never any uh, resentment about that, basically because we were so successful. So as a junior kid from the age of 10 to, you know, 15, we didn't lose one game and we won the city of Sydney. So we played every team in Sydney and it was a really successful little junior team. And so a lot of those skills were actually developed um, or they, they were – Developed innately, really. You know, and I, I still remember now, like I can picture myself on a field and, you know, where a teammate makes a mistake and straight away you think, well, they just need they just need confidence. Like, so I'd, if I was, as captain, I'd go up and say, don't worry, mate. Don't worry about that mistake. Just go and make up for it. Yeah. So they focus on the next positive thing. If they made the same mistake again, you might get a little bit more stern with them. Say, come on, mate, you're not focused here. Pay attention, you know, like get on with it. Come on. If they made the third mistake, then you like, you know, you might, yeah, come on, like, just, you're not, you, you get a bit harsh yeah. because they're not focused. So, um, as a management skill, it's kind of like the three, three warnings or something. I don't know. But I think that just happened instinctively. I think in business, it's a similar sort of thing. Like, yeah, if someone makes a mistake at work, it's like, you don't focus on the mistake. So, mate, but, you know, is, is there any, what can we do here to make sure this doesn't happen again? Yeah. And, and to, to put that into context of this lesson that, we, that we're talking about right now that you've just read through for us, um, which is, you know, look after your suppliers, yeah. I want to put that into a bigger picture for people because even towards the end of that, that lesson, you explained that it goes both ways, that the, the customer or the pers- person receiving the product needs to look after that supplier by paying them on time. And then around the other way as well, that supplier needs to work with that customer in in all ways, providing a good product, being honest and being flexible. The same with that sporting team. As the captain, you need to be able to look after that team. The reason that your team was so successful was because nobody felt that if they made a mistake that they would be punished, um, you know, and, and it went around in that circle. So the correlation is supplier to customer, captain to team. You know, everyone will, will come away with a win after keeping those communication lines open in that respect level yeah and i have noticed like over the decades like really successful teams 
will have that culture. Mm. So everybody is willing and interested in contributing and taking a risk. And uh, and I remember I remember a game we played in um, we were touring in New Zealand, and uh, as everybody knows, New Zealand's famous for their competitive ability to be able to play rugby well. And we were playing a team, and we had this one player who was a bit of an uncoordinated guy. And we were really under pressure in, in our sort of court of the field. And he got the ball, and we just, a couple of people just yelled out to him instinctively that they were, it wasn't panic, it was just like, kick it. And he kicked the ball. It was the biggest kick I've ever seen from a junior <laughs> kid. It just went like, it got us right out of trouble. Everybody's just like patting on the back saying, how? Well done. Like, that's probably the only kick he ever did in his life that was any good. But it got us out of a hole. So I think it was sort of what happens is when you create that um, culture of confidence, everybody actually plays almost beyond themselves. But they, certainly if they're playing to their ability, then occasionally you get people going, you know, even pulling out stuff that's beyond their ability that you would never expect was in them. And I think that's in, a, in a, any, any business where you've got a team of people, if you can create that same culture where everybody gets reward for contributing uh, and, and is, feels free to put forward a suggestion to improve how stuff works, it makes it more enjoyable for them. So that's if they're the customer and you know the owner, you're the you're the supplier, then then the, you you respond positively, they respond positively, and everything just is way more enjoyable for the the worker and the business partner. And it's way more enjoyable for obviously the you know the owners and investors in the business too. Absolutely, one hundred percent. I um I was thinking when you were talking about um, Val, the business that you took over, and you said that she was able to make customer visits twice a week, mm. um, and that you sort of weren't able to uphold that as the business was spreading and, and expanding. What sort of customer relationship management did you then implement, or did you have anything at all in the way of customer relationship management? Well, back then as one man band, she was actually doing the deliveries herself. Mm-hmm. So I realised that I couldn't keep doing the deliveries personally if I wanted to grow the business. But no, like I think it, it, the customer relationship management back then was very sketchy. It's interesting you say that because I've just uh, started. We were using Base as a CRM tool. Yep. And uh, we're just looking. At, we just started experimenting with HubSpot actually, which uh, looks like it's um, pretty. Just a little bit more intuitive, perhaps, than I don't know, than base. I know I've got some other customers that really like um, base, but no, back then it wasn't nearly as systematic as it should have been. And that was where I'm, I'm not a real, I'm not particularly good at systems. And thankfully, I've got a someone who works for me. Who got a is. systems guy, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he gets a bit frustrated with me because I'm not more systematic. So I've consciously got to make sure I keep on fitting in with those those systems so that I don't just become disruptive. Um, but yeah, like I think those today those um, for from what I can see is HubSpot as an example. Like it's a great little tool for managing customers and and managing new clients in the in the sales funnel as well. So that's they're just a no brainer to me. They're fantastic. So HubSpot, if you're listening, um, <laughs> yeah, free plug. <laughs> We've got a well, spot. So we've got a spot available for uh, sponsorship. Yeah. <laughs> you quote, "It's not, it's not what you know, but who you know." Do you think that there is both sides to that, or are you? Some people are, you know, it's not who you know, it's what you know. 
Are you sort of either side of the fence on that one in the middle? Or do you, do you pretty much strongly believe that it's who you know? Well, if you're trying to build up a business, uh, as a small business in your own business, then it's definitely way more who you know because you can always fill in the what you don't know. But if you've got someone that's flawed or someone that's not reliable or someone who under the surface, say, the, you know, example would be, you know, when I hired the manager, which is another story in the book, uh, and um, I selected one guy who was a fantastic manager and the guy I knocked, or who I instinctively, purely on a gut feeling basis, declined to appoint as manager, ended up going to another business and he totally destroyed it because he of his own personal character flaws. So I think if you're trying to, you, you've got to go for character first and then you fill in the knowledge. And if they've got the right character, they'll want that knowledge so then you can you can fill in the gaps mm. and then you've got a really strong foundation for someone. And also, look, I think by and large, you know, certainly in, in barista culture, for instance, you know, I, although it's becoming a little bit more universal now, but as a rule, I... In the past, I'd prefer to get a barista who had virtually no training so you can actually train them in your culture rather than them bringing in bad habits from another culture that might not be the way you want to do it. And it becomes more, it becomes, there's more friction there. It's more you're spending time on time wasting issues, discussing different ways of doing stuff rather than just getting on with doing it in the, in the system in the way that you want to, you've developed as being the, the most optimal way to to run the business. So I think, yeah, yeah, my answer would always be leaning on the side of getting the person with the integrity and the, and the ability. It's not like you don't want to, you know, you've got to find, everybody has a role in life. You've got to find out where they where they hit the ceiling, where they're comfortable, where they're, not even so much where they're comfortable, where their natural fit is. And so you're not putting, you know, square peg in a round hole and trying to make it work mm. for too long. Yeah, you can do it temporarily. but Unless it's a long. smaller square than the circle. And then it rattles. <laughs> then it rattles around a bit, you know. And the, the rattling is not so good when you're, you're bumping along a, a bumpy road. I um, I had this conversation recently, and Ben, I know that you're listening, so I'm just going to throw you under the bus a little bit here. I won't use names or businesses, but reflect on what Instrada just talked about there, and that's when you're making a higher decision for something that you or somebody may not be ready for or have the time to inject on, you know, physically. You can look at. Do I bring in someone with that skill set? But as you just mentioned, they could be bringing in cultural issues from previous workplaces. They could be bringing in bad habits that you might not resonate well with your business. So consider that. Remember that you can always teach someone, train somebody, and that's the what. Bring in the right person with the integrity and the character that you're looking. Make sure that they're the right fit and then fill in the what. Yeah, definitely. One cup filter. Now, this is before my time. Yep. Because I shouldn't have been drinking coffee at the age of probably one. Um, <laughs> what is that? Draw it like a – can you create a, a picture in our minds? Yeah, well, if you've, you've seen the, um, uh, the Swiss gold filter for mm-hmm. a, for a, that sits on top of your cup. Yep. So, if you think of like a, a V60 yep. uh, for one cup. Instead of being a, but it's manufactured as like a, a throwaway yeah, sort of. Yeah, it was back in the day, and, yeah. and we we started implementing recycling programs. But yeah, look, it's still, as far as I know, it's still sold in um, 
in those those places you mentioned. I've yeah. seen some things in um, in hotels and, and Airbnbs and that sort of stuff. They're sort of like a you know, in a little packet, tear the packet open, fold it. You know, it's like a, a filter paper with coffee yeah. grounds in it, and it yeah. sits perfectly over a mug. Yeah, so and that, then you you pour the the water over the top. Is that similar to another version of it? Yeah, yeah. yeah sure. I quite enjoyed that. I think that was a really fun experience. Yeah, it's hard to get the extraction right and the flow rate right. Well, if you're not yeah. familiar with how coffee works, then yeah, you, you could make an error. Yeah. But I enjoyed it. It was yeah, fun. Yeah, yeah. Lesson five, the coffee entrepreneur. Look after your staff. Another example of this kind of loyalty occurred some years later, but still long before smartphone apps when my wife and I didn't have much spare money and I couldn't afford to buy a Tide watch. I used to obsess about getting myself a Tide watch so I could know when the best time to go for a surf would be. As any surfer will tell you, the changing tides result in different waves. At my local break, low tide gets a bit dicey on the rocky point where I prefer to surf. One day while my wife was walking along the beach, she noticed something half covered in the sand as a wave retreated on the shoreline. When she picked it up, she saw it was a rip-curl tide watch. It had obviously been lost for quite a while, as it had little barnacles encrusted on it and had stopped working some months before, according to its calendar. And she couldn't find anybody on the beach who knew anyone who'd lost a watch recently. Knowing how much I was yearning for my own tide watch and without telling me, my wife sent the watch to rip-curl, asking them if it was possible to fix it. Some weeks later, she received a parcel in the mail. Inside was the watch, newly cleaned, pressure tested, checked, and in full working order. The enclosed letter told my wife that we could keep the watch and there was no charge for fixing it. I was so stoked to have my own working tide watch and so impressed that a business would do something like this for free that ever since, I've only bought rip-curled surf gear whenever I can. They have made a lot of sales from me through this act of generosity and have been more than recompensed, even though there was absolutely no guaranteed obligation. Back in our little coffee factory, the metal die cast that formed the plastic component of our one-cup filter was pretty old and worn, which resulted in increasingly poor quality filters. We knew we had to retool the machine, but with idealistic youthfulness, we imagined we could innovate and design a new tool that would allow the filter to also attach to the top of take-home cups as well as sit on top of the tableware or china cups. We invested a lot of time in research and development, delaying the actual upgrade of our die cast that resulted in a longer time during which poor quality filters were received by our customers. This did not help to engender our customers' confidence in us as the new boys supplying their product. In addition to this, we were contacted by the Belgian consulate on behalf of Rombout's head office in Belgium. We were summoned to a meeting with a Belgian diplomat, no less, who explained that we were not authorised to use their brand name on the packaging. This was fair enough, but as we had clear ownership of the equipment, old as it was, there was nothing they could do to stop us from using another name. The diplomat was rather an obtuse man who, as he talked, tried to intimidate us, as though we had committed a crime. He had a very weird habit of sticking a post-it note on his forehead as he studied his notes. It made it a little bit difficult to take his threats too seriously. In any case, we immediately set about designing new packaging as well. Given that we were also in the middle of redesigning our logo, we had a few balls in the air. 
I contacted a creative advertising acquaintance I knew at the time and organised a meeting of all our staff at my cousin Peter's office in Clarence Street, downtown Sydney. I noticed that even though I invited my cousin Peter to join us, he was not interested. We briefed the creative guy to redesign the pack. It took us longer than it should have to decide on a logo, and as we were under time pressure to redo the packaging in a hurry, we accepted a very radical change in the look and feel of the packaging. It was a disaster. Instead of a soft, light-coloured photo of the product in the front, we ended up with a stark, hand-drawn, black-and-white artistic man in an armchair. It could have been Bing Crosby. It was a classic case of too much change, too late. In retrospect, all we probably needed to do was redo the artwork so it had a similar look and feel to the previous packaging and switch in our new logo and brand name for the old Rombouts branding, ensuring it looked similar enough but different enough to avoid the wrath of the post-it note on forehead Belgian diplomat. It was an absolute disaster. Sales declined and our costs went up with the new design and new tooling. Eventually we stopped producing the product altogether, but not before I met with one of our small retail customers who had sold it. This customer was Audrey Braun, who ran a shop in Neutra Bay with the unlikely name of Coffee Tea Or. In spite of the name, Audrey was a very astute retailer who had previously run Cremorne Coffee and Tea and for a while had rented my brother's roaster at Narrenburn before she set up her own roaster with her son, Peter Braun, who still runs the family roasting business, Gourmet Gold. Audrey complained, and rightly so, about the change in packaging and the perceived change of quality in our one-cup filter and went back to using the competitor's product. Audrey ended up selling her retail shop to a retired Qantas airline employee, who I also subsequently got to meet as I tried selling our failing one-cup retail coffees. As a result of this relationship, he subsequently offered to sell us his shop. In spite of the one-cup filter setback, we were sailing along pretty well overall. I found out that the reason Peter had not come into the meeting was because he thought it was going to be a talk fest, to use his words, and he was probably correct. His management style was quite hands-off, which allowed me to both succeed well and fail spectacularly. But we only grow through making mistakes and learning to avoid them, and also through simultaneously reinforcing and replicating our successes. Peter and his friend and fellow director, Brian, decided they wanted to increase the working capital of the company. We were expanding rapidly, and it did seem like we needed the extra capital to maintain the pace of our growth. Peter encouraged me to make sure I had sufficient funds to maintain my share of the paid-up capital. The original total was $100, and it was going to be about $100,000. This meant I had to find about $10,000 in order to maintain my 10% share, which I somehow managed to do. It also meant that my brother Rob would need to find $45,000 in order to maintain his 45% share of the business. We had a board meeting in our office at the factory in Brookvale to vote and decide on what to do. This was one of the most difficult decisions I've ever had to make in my life because I had the swing vote with my humble 10%. Should I do what I believe was in the best interests of the business, which as managing director, you have a legal responsibility to do? Or if Rob couldn't raise the money slash capital savings, should I vote to hold the business back, knowing it could be a long time before he had enough to chip in? I ultimately decided the right thing to do was to agree to increase the capital, which resulted in Rob's share of the business going from 45% to less than 1%. 
he was devastated. And even though he had never said anything to me directly, he must have had some pretty hard feelings towards me. He's always acted very honourably in spite of any hurt he may have felt. It takes a big-hearted person to be this generous in spirit. This would be a very hard decision to make under any circumstances, but when it involves family, it is even more emotional and exponentially more difficult. Over time as brothers, we have softened towards each other and I have since had my own ups and downs to deal with, which have been no less devastating for me. Perhaps that has helped Rob to see that stuff happens not just to him but to all of us, or perhaps it was karma catching up with me. Some time later, however, my brother, Peter, and his Qantas mate decided to sell out of the business, and Scott decided to buy in. So I now had a completely new business partner. Scotty was someone I described as almost more honest than the days long, and I've said, and as I've said, a very hard-working, reliable man. But Scotty back then was very cautious and also pretty risk-averse. Based on advice Peter had given me, Scott came on board as a co-owner on a 50-50 basis. The result was that we often butted heads and the business growth stalled for some years as business decisions became more protracted. I got a bit frustrated, as I am sure Scott did too, and we lost direction. We were now still supplying the office market as well as a smattering of cafes and retailers. But in business, you can't be all things to all people. In order to succeed, you have to specialise in channeling your resources into identifiable areas or markets. And the inertia between us was reflected in our company direction. For instance, in order to service our good office clients, we also had to supply cups and all sorts of ancillary grocery items that office managers need to look after their staff. This meant that we had fallen into the trap of the old 80-20 rule. That is, 80% of our revenue came from specialty coffee, and maybe 20% came from all the grocery items. The trouble was that way more than 20% of our resources were being tied up with the bulky grocery items. They were taking up too much warehouse space, too much money, and too much time. We came across George Greener, who had built up a distribution company that specialised in supplying all these grocery items to offices, as well as distributing our competitors' roasted coffee. George, with whom I learned how to do cold sales calls, was a business partner in his straightforward distribution business that supplied many of the same office coffee customers we were targeting. The key difference was that he supplied the full range of grocery items to the office kitchen, but he wasn't a coffee specialist. His business supplied everything, including headache tablets, toilet paper, cookies, disposable cups, instant coffee, and many different brands of roasted coffee. In fact, pretty much everything human beings may need to get through their working day. But we weren't a grocery wholesaler. We had our own coffee roasting equipment, and we were actually specialty coffee roasters. George's business was a textbook lesson in how not to handle a business. Not by George, but by the people who used to previously manage him. The original business owners employed George and four or five other drivers as their delivery guys. George and his colleagues were paid a flat fee per delivery. This handful of self-starting guys became the de facto sales force for the company. They were all very street smart, shrewd operators who had figured out that if you were delivering to one office in a building it makes it a whole lot more easy and efficient to deliver it to as many offices in that one building as possible. So they developed the strategy that George in turn demonstrated to me of quickly approaching any nearby prospect with products and services. These half dozen guys ended up being the face of the company as they delivered and got more new customers. The total business back in the 1980s was sold to a larger corporation for $100 million, not an insubstantial amount even today, three decades later.
the new owners hired supposedly smart, young university business graduates to handle their new acquisition. The executives decided they were paying their delivery drivers, including George, too much. They soon told all the drivers that they could stay on as salaried employees rather than as subcontractors, which on the surface appeared to be a substantial saving to the new owners. But George and his colleagues were incensed. They used to start work at 4am every morning, and as the de facto sales force had been responsible for building up this valuable business in the first place. In their minds, they were left with no alternative once their incentive for working smartly and efficiently was removed. They quickly decided to resign. They took with them, however, the knowledge of every customer, and more importantly than that, they took the relationships that they had built up with every customer, including the ones who they had often helped in emergencies. Within a very short time, their new business prospered, and the previous established and very valuable business floundered, and eventually disappeared altogether. I didn't ever hear what happened to the smart, young, highly paid university graduates. Business is not just about numbers on a page, but it is also about looking after people. Did anyone lose a Tide watch? <laughs> if you're out there, I'm really sorry. I don't know where it is now. <laughs> That's um, firstly, like, hats off to your wife. That was a really thoughtful, amazing thing to do. Um, she knew how she knew how badly I wanted one. And well done to keep it unwrapped because I feel like that wouldn't have been a quick procedure. That would have been a couple of weeks, oh, totally, if yeah, not yeah. longer. So yeah, you know, no, she's good at keeping secrets <laughs> in a good way, I'm sure. Yeah, uh, and an amazing hats off to to the Rip Curl Company to to have done that. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, well, I saw the original owners just sold out a couple of months ago. Actually, really, so they've been there all that time. I guess how timely? But they started it actually. In 1969, which is the first, that was the year I bought my first surfboard, actually, 1969. Was it a rip curl? No, back then, they, well, they were in Victoria in 1969, so being in, in the northern beaches, um, they weren't even on the radar. You probably had a, just a handmade, custom-made board, no, I'm I bought an old second-hand uh, Mal, actually, oh, yeah. uh, from a schoolmate for about 11 bucks. It's a great board. Bargain. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. still have it? <laughs> no, no, that, that got unsolved. Because that's when short boards were coming in, so I very quickly sold that, and then then the next board I got actually got I got it made for me by a, a friend of the family. Good short board, but the the fin was off, wasn't set properly. It was a fixed fin. Oh right, it so it's not you can't do anything about yeah, it either. Yeah, yeah. You used to hum as you go down the wave. <laughs> um, I just I, I just need to talk about this guy in the post-it note on his forehead. Oh yeah, I almost. Burst out laughing every every time I hear and read that. Like I just I need to understand it. Did do you understand what it was about yet? No, I think he was just an eccentric guy. Like I believe that some some Europeans look upon Belgians as some Brits look upon Irish people. You know, the, the butt of some jokes. You know, but um, and the Irish can laugh at themselves as well. Fortunately, but I'm not sure about the Belgians. I don't know about the the nuances of their. Uh, their personalities, but it was just a really odd thing to do. And you're right, was, it just was there anything written on it? No, I don't think so. <laughs> oh, he just stuck it on his head and then he'd talk <laughs> and then take it off and stick it back on. Helps him concentrate. It was really hard to take it seriously because he's he's trying to give up his really threatening aura. You know, I want to try this. Like, I don't know, maybe in an awkward conversation circumstance, I'm just going to slap a post-it note on my forehead. And <laughs> you reminded me of a that reminds me of a 
when Peter Forsyth, my cousin, used to have occasion, we'd have a, a board meeting, and uh, and he was a really gifted businessman, but he would uh, get everybody to wear like a funny mask. So you might have that like gra- um, a Groucho marks, you know, like a nose and a moustache mm. thing or, you know, a set of glasses or <laughs> everybody had to put a different mask on during Just the meeting. Just lightens the mood or something. Oh, it totally, totally breaks the ice. So you, and after a while you're having these serious business meetings, you completely forgotten that you've got all these <laughs> stupid masks on, but, oh, but it's great. just a great way to break the ice and, you, you know, everybody just sort of, you know, talks about. Realises that it doesn't have to be all black and white mundane. No, no, it's fun. Yeah, he used to, fun. yeah, he's really good at creating fun. Yeah. We've definitely had our fun. So to get a bit, get to a bit more of a serious note, um, you know, the big decision that you mentioned, the probably the, was that the biggest decision you'd ever had to make? Um, oh, with, yeah, still yeah. to this day. Yeah, yeah, it's that's that's as hard as it gets. Sounds like it still has a pressure point on you. Oh no! Look, it's just you know because it's family, and it's relationships, and, absolutely, and, and that's it's it's just as tough as it gets. I think you know. Yeah. But let's um, let's note though that. You had to make that decision, not just legally because of the position that you're in, but because you wanted to get ahead and you wanted the company to get ahead. You know, you've got to make these decisions. And I'm just going to ironically say it's the hard thing about hard things. It's a book I mentioned to you a few months ago. Um, and it, it's true. You know, if you want to get ahead, you want to get somewhere, whether it be in business or relationships or whatever it is. You've got to make big decisions. You've got to make hard decisions. And if you can accept that they're going to be hard, makes the hard decision a little bit easier, ironically. Yeah, look, it's, um, you know, if he'd had the $45,000 to maintain his percentage, then obviously it would have been a way easier decision for me. Um, and, yeah, look, obviously the part of that was, You've got that self-interest involved, and that's what makes it way more complicated. Because you think, well, am I just being selfish, or am I really doing this for the right reasons? You know, I know this is going to potentially hurt someone. Um, should it, should I do this or not? You know, it's, it's uh, yeah, they're not they're not easy. Have you come across many other instances in the last couple of years, or or since, where you've had to probably not on the same emotional level i guess because yes you're right family that makes it harder taking out of that taking away from that the family aspect and that emotional aspect there have you had to make big difficult decisions and you've learned from from that moment how to handle it or how to deal with it look yeah i've had you know obviously business partners come and go and whenever you're doing those negotiations you know, it can always be, it always has a little bit of tension in it, you know, which is natural mm. um, because everybody wants to get the the best arrangement for themselves. Um, but, yeah, I just have to be careful, you know, and that's part of the competitive instinct. You have to be careful not to be too brutal or ruthless and you've got to, I can, you can, you can make mistakes by just mm. being too clinical. And, um, you know, like that example that, you're using it this morning where you, you know, decided to leave a business and they weren't actually treating you with the due respect that you don't for all your efforts at that business that you're working in, whereas they rewarded someone else who was much less worthy of that, you know, that kind of recognition. Mm. So, again, you know, you, you, you try and get it right. That's the main thing. You're trying to actually get it right. 
and learning from the times when you don't. Yeah, and you're not always going to get it right, are you? No, no. Yeah, but good intentions, it's a yep. good start. Yeah. When you were playing around with the grocery items and you, you were talking about the 80-20 rule and yep. you noticed that obviously it was taking up a lot of space, only responsible for 20% of revenue, I'm yep. presuming, how long had you been playing in that space before you realised that those items were outside of the company's scope and that they needed to be, I guess, taken out? It's, it's like a, a lot of things, it just, it just grew incrementally and, you know, you're not even noticing that it's just... So you think, yeah, you, you think, okay, this is what we need to do, this is what the business yeah, needs. Yeah, you want to you want to get your business, you don't want to knock it back, or, and also you want to keep clients so you keep accommodating them. Mm. Um, so it's 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 very hard as a small business when you're growing, and you know you're dependent on a customer. So it's that principle of looking after them and then being flexible and accommodating them. So then it makes it much harder to have you keep your systems, and you need the systems so you can grow. So it's a it's a catch twenty two. You know you 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 need the cash flow from that existing customer in order to stay alive. And you're always looking to get a new one, but to get the new one, you need the systems in place. So you kind of you're working against yourself. You always got that tension of, you know, if you can get ten customers and they all fit in the system, and you, which is how obviously big businesses work. You know, they have got the systems. Everybody just fits into the system. And if you come and, and you're a customer and you come in, you fit in with their system. <laughs> Making the system to suit you. Yeah, there's no emotional attachment on a large scale company though. Really, is there with their customer like? Well, you know, when you're a small business and you've got that human interaction and then you've got that relationship, that intimate connection. Look, I, I'm, you know, full of admiration for any business that can do it, that can make that connection with a customer. Mm. And, I mean, if you look at, you know, certainly someone like Steve Jobs with Apple had that magic where it was almost like it was a cult, you know, where people just slavishly would part with a lot of money, a lot more than the competitor's product. To have that item, so he, so it's possible to create that uh, emotion, that that attachment and affection, you know, for a, well, like me with Ripcord, for instance. So that was a long way down the chain there, but that little act created that emotional attachment for me and created that loyalty. So it is possible to do. It. It's not easy though. It's very very hard to keep everybody focused on what's important for the customer. Was there a you know, you've always had a bookkeeper involved. Was it the bookkeeper who might have said, oh, guys, you know, you're, you're spending a lot of time in warehouse space on, on all these products. They're only responsible for 20%. Or was there a reaction? So I'm just sort of getting back to my original question there. What, what forced me to focus on it? What forced you to outsource those grocery items that you talked about that were the 20%? Was it, was it the bookkeeper going, hey, guys, you know, knocking on the door, they're not making, they're not worth it? Or was it an, a reaction? No, I think it was out of frustration. One day I just, I just thought, what the hell are we doing here? Okay. Like, you know, it's just, this isn't working. This isn't, yeah. you know, we've, we've accommodated so many customers so much that we're actually not focused on our core business. So it took to a, took the business to a point of of size in growth yeah. before you could then go, all right. This is stopping us from going further. Yes. Yeah. 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 You couldn't have done that like you explained before. You couldn't have done that early stages because you needed to try to service yep. all your customers yep. to the maximum fulfillment that you could offer. Oh, look, maybe if we we're smart enough at the start and realized that from day one, that that's what we needed to do. We would have outsourced that from day one. So then you're getting a, 
you know, as long as you're getting something out of those sales, even if it's a lesser percentage, but it's not taking any of your emotional or, you know, mental time, then that's a smart way. Like, and the really smart operators that do that right at the start, they look at the start and say, okay, well, what's that? And think about it really analytically and figure out what they are good at, what their core business is, and then structure so that, that goes, they, they grow together, but they can both be scalable. Yeah. So, yeah, then I, I, when that when I hit that frustration, I, I sat down and, and that's when I did actually go over the the numbers. So I looked at all, I looked at the books and looked at where the profits coming from. Yeah, looked at, looked out in the factory space and looked at what percentages being taken up by different products. And yeah, the amount of time that we'd have, and resources, you know, a delivery truck and a driver and a, you know all the other stuff that we needed to do to support that extra extra um, products. So once I sat down and had a hard, cold look at the numbers, then it was a no-brainer. You think like, okay, we've got a solution here. We outsource that. That actually tipped a little bit of extra capital back in the business. Okay, it's a little bit more to help grow the business, and um, uh, and just enable us. They, they then also became a distributor for us, so they could then we had sold more coffee through them as well. So that was sort of like a real win-win. We sold, we could focus on our own coffee customers. We actually got a new coffee customer out of it. We've got a little lump of you know cash to injection into the business, back into the business. So um, that that completely transformed the business. It's a very satisfying outcome. Yeah, you know, yeah. it sounds like just with a you know flick of a switch, you've looked at it from a slightly different perspective, done a bit of investigating, you've made a few moves, and I presume in a fairly short period of time, you've got a rather large outcome yeah. within your business. Yeah, once we yeah, once we did that deal. And uh, and they took it over. Then um, we made sure we worked really closely with them. But they were just effectively another client for us, another good client. And um, and that's when we actually opened up the retail stores, the cafe. We took over the cafe after that. So okay, yeah, because we needed to coffee being a core cool business. We needed to let people know that we're doing coffee, not just all the other. We were not just a grocery supplier. Yeah, we so it allowed you to branch special. out a well, little bit more. Well, just just following through that once we we. Made that clear, where we're especially coffee guys, then we need to communicate that to people. So how can we communicate that best? So then we realised, okay, well, we need a we need a cafe that we're running ourselves and a, a retail outlet, so that people can see we can be in control of that quality all the way through to the client to the customer, and that's actually communicating exactly what we're doing. That's why it's so important to be clear on your scope. You know. Do what's within the scope of what you want to achieve. And, I mean, whether you make that adjustment later on down the track like you guys did or like you said, you know, had you identified that earlier, you might have skipped that little bit of a process. But it doesn't matter when you do it. Having that clarity on what you're setting out to achieve Mm. impacts the business greatly. Yeah, Yeah, and then we, you know, we were with Espressology at the moment, for instance, you know, we had a, a cafe came to us and they wanted us to, you know, supply them with a coffee machine and a grinder and wanted to put it in 20000 bucks worth of cafe equipment. But it was a really quick decision. We know where we're going. That's, that's not our business. Our mm-hmm. business is supplying the distributors who want to put that package together, the cafe. So it was like a – it wasn't even a second. Would have opened Pandora's box for you guys. Oh, it's <laughs> down into not, a it's not, rabbit hole. It's not what we do. We, and, yeah, it's not a you know, They really, really wanted us to supply them. We just said, look, that's not how we do it. We can put you in touch with someone that can organize that for you and we can supply them. That's our business. But, yeah. So once you're clear about it, then 
and just stay focused on what you, you need to do. Perfect example. I find it funny that um, when you were talking about the the guys that you ended up sort of shifting out your grocery items to when they sold out for the 100 mil, which yep. is a good, good little bit of good pocket money, yeah. yeah, that they went and hired a whole bunch of smarts, you know. Yep. And we were just talking previously about it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yep. That is the prime example. Yep. They went and hired people who knew the what, mm. supposedly. Yep. They were very intelligent, very smart. They were paying for what they knew and they ended up losing the people who knew who the customers were, who the suppliers were. They had those relationships and that's where the value was. So this company, what, went belly up? Look, or at the, least... The company, the board, they, they're a 150-year-old company. They're a South Sea trading business. I'm not sure if they're still around, Burnsville. If you go down uh, Bridge Street in the city, that's still their building's still there, their old sandstone building with Burnsville carved into the wow. sandstone outside. It's still there. They're a fantastic um, old-school, old-world company. And clearly at that point, in the whenever that was, the 80s, with the management they brought in, they were getting away from their core business and they clearly got people who were very smart um, but not street smart and not kind of aware of just that, that basic of, okay, you've got to, you've got to, those, where, where's the, the key to this business? The key is the relationship you always deliver. They're the face of that business. And that was actually what they were totally blind to and thought it didn't matter. Uh, when it was actually... It was the core. It was, it was the absolute, core of the outcome. Absolute core, core of the business. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. yeah. So, again, hire the, the character, the person that can face your company, not the... You know. Yeah, look, I guess that's where they've, they've... I mean, they might have been really, you know, had lots of good integrity, but someone's hired the wrong intelligence. You know, they're smart guys, but... They're not smart in a street smart sense. Yeah. yeah. Good for an office, not on the road. I'm sure they were good people. Anyway, yeah. we're flogging the hell out of that dead horse. Yeah. <laughs> in Strata, let's have a chat. Let's have a coffee chat. There is literally thousands of options of espresso machines and grinders. Mm. I mean, they're the two core parts of producing coffee that we need. Well, you, so you're a good case in point. So I know that the supplier that was looking after you originally recommended a particular machine. Mm-hmm. It was a more of a, um, you know, tradesman-like machine. It was pretty heat exchange, pretty very reliable. And we've actually got one that's we've been using for quite a while. It's fine. But against his advice, you chose another one, which I know frustrated him because he thought, well, I know the supplier, a good supplier. And this is the machine that's easy to look after. So you tell me, why did you make that decision? Um, Because I think you're talking about yourself here, right? uh, Look, let's not put it that way. (laughs) Um, 
Well, no, actually, I mean, it was it's, again in conversations with some other people who were looking at going into the into the area of serving coffee yep. um, and making coffee, and they've got a big decision to make. Mm. Where do we put our anywhere between five and forty thousand mm. dollars just on an espresso machine? Now, answering your question, kind of, sort of. I research the heck out of everything that I'm going to do mm. or want to do or am mm. interested in, mm. and I spent a good chunk of anywhere between six to ten months um, YouTubing, reading, um, listening, talking about coffee machines, coffee mm. making, grinders, and I eventually feel that the decision that I made was based on what I wanted to achieve, what I wanted it to look like, how I wanted it to act. So, so be more specific about that. So what, what was you wanted to achieve and why did you choose the machine that you chose? I wanted to achieve control um, and, and flexibility. Control over? So I guess you've got like the finesse of, you know, using the word tools because that's kind of what they are. You know, you've, you've got a sledgehammer mm. or you've got, you know, a, a small pin-style hammer. Mm. Um, it's, it's allowed me to have more control over the coffee that we produce. Um, so you're talking temperature curves, got, curves, yeah, you've got pressure curves. Yeah, you've got all the uh, individual temp. group head, individual group heads. You got, and and you you're looking at it. You like the technology. You actually, you're I personally, the phone, yeah, the I, li- I like the technology. So yeah. when I first came across, actually, we we're in um, Melbourne International Coffee Expo in 2019. Um, and the intention was I had a short list of equipment that I wanted to acquire. I walked around probably for eight hours looking at all of the machines. Mm. Now, this one grabbed my attention visually initially, mm. which is never a good thing, um, <laughs> but it paid off. And when I first looked at it, I was like, man, this thing looks like a Lamborghini. Now, I love cars too, right? So that's a whole other subject. Yeah. But, you know, so I was initially caught by its visual appeal. Mm. And then I got to speak with um, some of the guys responsible for the sales and marketing. I, I presume these guys were from Milan. Yeah, you know, that's where they manufacture these particular machines. And he just started. I, I was catching every second word at this point because you know, a bit of a language barrier. Um, but I was just so intrigued by it. And and all he did, right? It's perfect sales thing right here he goes all right we've got temperature controls we've got temperature profiling now what i'm going to do is i'm going to pull you a shot at um you know 90 degrees up to profiled up to 94 degrees um or 93 whatever it was and then i'm going to do the reverse i'm going to pull it from 93 down to 90 and he put two shots side by side nothing was different he was using a puck press to tamp so there was no variation in in tamp pressure and they tasted so different and I, wow, that's what I want. Which one did you like better? I liked. Now you're testing my memory. I'm not sure which one I liked. I think it was actually profiled up. It profiled from. No, incorrect. It profiled down. It went from 93 down to 90. Hmm. I don't know what blend or roast they were using at no. the time. I you know, that wasn't on my radar, but I know for our current blend. Uh, a lower temp up to a higher temp seems to work really well. Mm. Um, 
But I wanted that control and I wanted to be able to look at it and read it. I wanted to be able to put it on a computer screen and, and analyze what was going on. Yeah. The model of the business was that I didn't have to be there. So if I wasn't there, I could still analyze what was going on with our shots right. and okay. we could still make sure that we were getting the consistency because the core part of our business was quality consistency. Okay. Yeah. So right. to, yeah, yeah. to do that. That's a big that management tool ability is obviously yeah, huge difference. Massive. So you can yeah. Actually, yeah, sure. I'll yeah. Get, I get that. Yeah, so I mean the, the initial machine that we were shown, great machine. I've seen them in many cafes and I understand um, serviceability parts, all that sort of thing, they come into play as well. Yeah. Because you, know, you had a couple of issues on the server side, didn't you? With our current machine? Yeah. Uh, one small issue, yeah. um, which the part was replaced under warranty, uh-huh. hasn't hasn't had a hitch yet. Okay. Uh, it's yeah. touch wood, yeah. very aggressive. How long has it been? Seven months okay. our machine's been working. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just it's a really nice machine. It's a bit of a talking point for some people, yeah. you know, um, rather than just a... Rect- silver rectangle box box thing. Yeah. yeah, this is a little bit sexy at the same time. Mm-hmm. So when I when I was researching that and looking into it, you know, I wanted to. I had boxes that I needed to tick, and that one ticked all the boxes. Mm-hmm. Not everyone's going to research things as heavily as I might, and I get that because you know some people just don't want to put the time into it. Maybe they don't care. Maybe they don't have the same. Um, passion for understanding things you know we were talking about these microphones before and i wanted to understand how the microphone worked i don't need to know but i want to know yeah so yeah so when someone's looking at espresso machines and they're looking at well, let's, let's look at the basics two group three group four group hmm. um i made the decision to go two group and it still keeps up with volume we could double our volume and still stay on a two group machine why would somebody go three or four when particularly people that I've talked to who might have a four-group machine go, I barely ever use the fourth head, let alone the third. So there's so many variations out there at the moment. Technology is one thing, aesthetics are another, um, and then you know capabilities, what can they do, what do you need them to do? Because they all spit out coffee at the end of the day at nine bars unless you adjust well, the pressure. Some, some, exactly some so are 13. Some are 4. Some are 5. Yeah. Well, line pressure is about 4, but, you know, there's, there's obviously people playing with their different extraction yeah. pressures. So, making it, um, yeah, the debate is whether it's a still espresso, but, I mean, that's fine. I mean, espresso, the literal definition of espresso mean, means originally expressly made for you. So, it's not a batch brew. It's made, and then whoever randomly comes along in the next half an hour gets some. It's actually a cup that's made for you on the spot, expressly for you. So that's if that's if you take that as a definition of espresso, then it actually doesn't matter whether it's made through an espresso machine. It's just made for you. Mm. So a one cup filler effectively is made expressly for you. So you know, technically, you could call it espresso, but it gets very confusing if you start doing that. Is that where people call it espresso, not espresso? Does that bother you? Oh, back <laughs> in the day, it would have, you know, but... Today you just laugh about it. Yeah, people want to call whatever you like, it's fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
So, yeah, but look, I think that um, there's an interesting dynamic with the, the size of the machine. So, you know, Proud Marys in Melbourne used to have a huge, I think it's about a five or six group machine. I think they joined two, two three group machines together or something. And that was a real statement back in the day. And, and I found the same thing in different businesses I've had. So if you had a bigger machine, it had more emotional impact to a customer walking in. So talking before about how you engage customers. So that was actually, they'd walk in and go, oh, wow, this is a big machine. These guys must be serious about their coffee. So on a very subliminal level, um, there comes a point where that's kind of ridiculous, but there's, you know, some famous old photos of, you know, 15 baristas in a row in Italy, you know, serving coffee behind machines. You know, obviously that's an esp- that's a, a busy espresso bar, you know, where they're all lined up and, and they're all busy. Um, so, and then you got the other thing with the, you know, the, um, the likes of the Mod Bar and those espresso brewers that are more, look more like a beer tap. So customers in Australia and New Zealand have been trained to come in. They see a, a big box on a, counter they know that's an espresso machine so it has that emotional kind of message if you replace that with what are effectively two or three beer taps they get confused they sort of, mm. like, they sort of look they step in they go uh so sorry do you guys do coffee here yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so that's that's a lot of education to to in that has to be reworked for from a consumer level you know to, to communicate that to them clearly just, it just reminded me of something that happened a couple of weeks ago. I had some customers come into our shop when I was um, when I was brewstering, <laughs> um, and they sort of they they walked past I think three or four times, and they finally came in, and I thought, okay, so they've they've walked around the suburb, they've had a look, they've chosen us, which is great, good start. And they walked up to the counter and they had a peak across next to the machine. They went, oh, no, they've, they've got two grinders. I've actually got three. But um, it was interesting. When I started to speak to them and ask them, you know, what are they up to? Where are they, where are they from? They were from Melbourne. And they were quantifying and qualifying cafes by how many grinders they had. <laughs> so that's just another piece to the puzzle, isn't it? Like, you know... How big is your how big's your grinder? Uh, how many do you have? Sure. Yeah. Um, and that was yeah that was an interesting little excursion of you know they ended up staying they ended up chatting they enjoyed the coffee we had fun and that's what it's all about. But yeah, they they chose us because we had more than one grinder. Bizarre. Yeah. Well, it's a similar kind of principle, isn't it? Mm. You know, it's communicate that that lump of equipment is communicating something of, of what you as a business are, fo- are focused on and obviously they're, they're not in, these guys are obviously consciously looking for that but a lot of people would be doing that un- subconsciously you know mm. um, interesting you, you mentioned Melbourne yeah there you go mm. I mean look they weren't screaming Melbourne but mm. you know, it's a big it's a big place but we all know that's where good coffee comes from Oh, does it? Yeah, I've, I've heard it, yeah, anecdotally. Could just be hearsay. <laughs> You're trying to bait me. No, not at all. Um, <laughs> going back to the original part of the question, when you're wanting to buy an espresso machine for coffee service, you've obviously you've got a budget that you're comfortable with. 
So do you just look, all right, what have I got within my parameters of budget? Take your next step, break it down. All right, what brands fall into my budget? Because brands pay a part as well. People walk in and go, ooh, Lamazocco. Wow, there's like 400 different models of Lamazocco. Which one is it? You don't know. You know, um, oh, you, um, you might not have heard of the brand before. Um, Ranchilio Specialty, you know, that's who I'm working with at the moment. And it's not Ranchilio. They've, they've created a separate sort of branch from that with their specialty machine. Yep. So, you know, what's the next step when you when you're wanting to buy an espresso machine, do you feel? Well, I mean, the answer is what you've actually done is that research, but that's it can be pretty exhausting, can't it? Absolutely. You know? It can take months. Yeah. And um Look, you know, I mean, I, I suppose that's where somewhere something like specialty coffee curators that we've set up in Marrickville, that's that's what that was designed to do. So you can go in there and you can try five different espresso machines, take your coffee in and actually try it. Um, there's not too many places where you can do that, but that would be an example of actually, I mean, if you're stepping back and saying, okay, well, do I decide on my coffee first? If that's the case, then... Then you can go out and try it on different machines, um, which would be the logical way to go, right? Because, I mean, you wouldn't make a decision on a coffee. You wouldn't make a decision on a machine, I don't think, before you decide on the coffee, would you? If you're setting up new. You know, if you think back mm. to nine months ago when you were setting up, did you choose your coffee first and then your machine? I think so. Excuse yeah. Me? yeah, I did. Yeah. So you're, you're doing it quite logically. I mean, a lot of people will just say, well, they'll decide on the coffee and then the coffee company will tell them what machine they have to get. Yeah, yeah. and I guess that's, you know. They, they dictate it because um, they've, you know, presumably shopped around for the, the most optimal special machine from their, their, that suits their coffee and their business model. It's not just so that, could, that could be a benefit to somebody who's not, Who's time poor, or maybe you know, and that, that's probably more often how it happens. Yeah. yeah, so you, you choose, you know, yeah. your roaster yeah. or your, your coffee bean supplier, and then let them. And the really smart operators won't do that, they'll actually get their own equipment, make that decision for themselves, and then and then they'll go out and choose the coffee, or they'll have a coffee in mind, but that actually Trial gives them freedom then to try any coffee they. Want. Yeah, it definitely opens up a world of um, experimentation and yeah. trialing. Yeah, which is obviously not for everybody. So there's a lot no. of people just yeah. depends on what you're setting out to achieve. Mm. So with um with grinders as well, like you know, there's different so many variations on grinders now as well. Like you've probably seen that come from five options now to five hundred options. Um, annoyingly, there's probably the same products coming out of the same factory with different brands on them. That doesn't help. That's making it more complicated. Saw a new little grinder out um, just this morning, which stemmed to this thought, which is, I think it's called a niche. I don't know if you've seen that. Mm-hmm. It's quite small, got a little footprint. The idea is it's a single-dose single, single dose grinder. Yeah. Um, price bracket's very reasonable when you compare it to other single-dose grinders. But for the price, you're also sacrificing like 10 times the amount of time to grind that dose. 
So I did the calculations on it this morning. You know, if you've got something like an EK, that's going to dump your dose in like, what, less than two seconds? Mm-hmm. This was going to take about 13 seconds to dump a 20-gram dose. However, it was, say, 60% of the 50 yeah, 50% of the price. So then you've got to weigh up how important is that time to you. Yeah. yeah. What are your thoughts on on that sort of thing there? I mean, obviously it depends on the kind of cafe that you are or, or coffee shop or whatever it is that you are. But you need to factor in price versus, I guess, outcome. Yeah, yeah well, if you, it's always great if you can... Um, not compromise quality and speed up your reduction. So that's always the optimal outcome. But yeah, obviously you have to cut your suit according to your cloth. If you can't afford the expensive gear, then you got to have the stepping stone and then create the cash flow to afford the, the better one. So you really consider, I guess, um, research your products. Try them if you can. Some like specialty coffee curators give you the opportunity to try yep. different products. Yep. Um, forecast, I think. Look at where you might be. I, I, fo- I fell into this trap. One of the grinders that I bought, it was in the budget, but I'm now annoyed that it takes, you know, eight to nine seconds to dump a dose. Um, yeah. You know, then, you know, had I spent maybe three thousand, three and a half thousand dollars it'll probably do it in half that time. It doesn't sound like a lot of time, but when you start to add it all up and your focus is putting coffees out quickly yep. and consistently, yep. you recuperate that cost very quickly. Yeah, sure. So I've thrown a little um, little experiment into the mix uh, that we've been working on, I guess, for this as well, and we've been playing around with the Alio Bullet um, in store and we've taken, I guess, the single origin programs to the next level by roasting them ourselves. So we now do a single origin which is roasted in-house on what is, I guess, new technology and probably a, a bit of a shaker to the roasting industry. Yeah, now, potentially disruptive, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been interesting. It's only been about a week or two um, that we've been trialling this for but it seems to be working already now. We've done a little bit of basic marketing by putting an A-frame out the front of the shop and you know, saying that we've got a freshly roasted single origin um, available. That helps, telling people what you've got. But, yeah, um, I'm interested to see to see where this goes and how far we can take it as well. Um, the Alio bullets, just, you know, I can shut up the shop, flick the machine on, 15, 20 minutes, she's preheated, ready to go. I can roast out a kilo, kilo and a half within an hour, you know, depending on how much time I'm spending mucking around, um, and and spit out a couple of different single origins, different roast profiles, and provide those to our customers. Did you, did you get the smoke suppressor fixed up okay? Yeah. It's just a new filter? New filters, yeah. yeah. It seems to... Um, Seems to want a new filter probably every, I want to say every two kilos at the moment. Well, that's when it might flash. Yeah. But you can take it down there. Yeah. So I've noticed if it starts flashing, when when both filter lights start flashing, 
Hmm. Um, I'll actually notice the smoke peeling out around the the inlet for the suppressor. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's when I know that it needs a clean. Yeah, yeah, but it's very effective, very efficient. Yeah, pulling that smoke out. Yeah, well, that that little roast is emblematic of you know a huge long term trend within the coffee industry. So you know back. If you go back to the early part or, or pre Second World War, so there was much, there was a lot more smaller roasters around, a more not in Australia so much, but certainly in um, America and Europe. America is really strong for that. I've yeah, noticed. that's their traditional culture. So you have lots of little small roasters, and then what happened after the Second World War, during the twentieth century, it was consolidation. And so after the Second World War, in particular, you got all these huge multinational you know, institutional coffee roasters that were supplying, you know, the whole market and to the point where in the 60s a lot of that small roasting culture sort of dropped off to a large extent. And then you had a reaction against that, which was when they set up the um, Specialty Coffee Association. And that was really facilitating that move back to the smaller roaster again. Mm. And so that's that sort of started in the 70s, thereabouts. And um, that's been continuing on ever since. So it's the last 50 years has been this move back to smaller roasters. And I've certainly, in my 40 years in Sydney and in Australia, like that's just that's growing exponentially now where small guys roasting in small coffee roasters are popping up everywhere. Whereas, you know, and there'd, be, there'd probably be hundreds of the north side of Sydney, for instance, right now. Whereas when I started, there's only about... There's only two others that I knew of. There's three. Would these guys be roasting on, what, five kilo, ten kilo? What, what do you classify as small? Yeah, yeah, five. five okay. Kind of like the minimum point where, like, if, you, you could, if you're supplying your own cafe and maybe one or two others, you know, you can, you can do that comfortably on a five kilo roast. You know, you're getting a four kilo yield. So, you know, you roast for two hours and you've got 20 kilos, of, you got 40 kilos of coffee. It's not a bad little way to go. What does somebody need to do to, um, you know, install a little five kilo roaster? Is there is there much is there much involved? Obviously, they're um, they're gas powered. Some electric, most are. Most yeah, are. are electric, very rare. Yeah, um, but yeah, most of natural gas. Yeah. Not not coal powered. <laughs> um, no, coal, coal <laughs> power is probably better than wood fire. But then I saw some. People proudly boasting that they use wood-fired um, coffee in a, the local Harris Farm market shop, you know. So that's part of their spiel. Coal, okay. would, coal would be better than wood and gas would probably be better than coal. Yeah. Nuclear would probably be better than a lot, but, you know, Nuc- that's another story. Nuclear roasted coffee. <laughs> I don't know how well that would sell. <laughs> Microwave. Yeah. Um, well, induction is... Then the next progression, because that's the most energy efficient, which comes back to that that earlier, which is very very smart technology. Um, so, but yeah, like in, in a in a in a shop, if you're setting up a gas fired roaster, yeah, there's a lot of compliance issues. And firstly, you've got to have gas available. Well, you can use a bottle, but then you can't have a bottle in confined space. And yeah, so it's, you, ideally you want to have street gas. Yeah, uh, but then you've got to, you know. Depends on the local council, but you know theoretically you should have a little afterburner so you haven't got 
you know, chaff and smoke spewing out. Um, so it's not as easy to do to set up a retail space. And the problem with setting up a little small roaster is like once you start growing as a business, you're actually performing a – if you're completely doing it yourself and you grow, you hit a, a wall where you're actually using a retail space, which is much more expensive per square metre than per square foot, however you want to measure it, than an industrial factory somewhere where you can have much lower cost of production because you're not paying as much for the rent. And the moment you become successful and you start doing all this roasting in the shop, it gets out of whack. So you're taking up more and more of your retail space, performing an industrial or you know function. Yeah. So the the numbers don't actually stack up. But but to doing what doing what you're doing, where you've got a little shop roast if you single origins, and then you get your main blend from the. Oh, the I think I think I calculated at the moment. You know, if we were to roast in a similar fashion, it would take me like 14 hours to roast the amount of coffee that we need. Yeah, and that's not a good use of your time. It's not I great, no. <laughs> no. I think I've got other things I could probably do. Yeah, and so that's often a trap that people end up getting into and then obviously that's what we're, you know, we've obviously helped a lot of people so then they can still do their little single origins if they want to, but we help them with their bread and butter coffee and don't compromise on the quality of that mm. and they can get on with growing their business. So we're freeing those coffee entrepreneurs. Absolutely. Freeing them to roast their own single origins. Yeah, from, which is uh, already from, my, from personal experience. It's fun for me. That's a better say. For most um, people, that's that's the real fun part. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, the customers that I've acquired additionally, because I roast after hours, um, our shop front is glass, so you can see everything that's going on. They walk past and they see me sitting in front of this little pig-looking thing with an elephant trunk sitting over the top of it. Like, I don't know if you guys could see a picture of it. Um, that's seriously what it looks like. Uh, you know, on a little mobile cart and the doors open and co- roast, freshly roasted coffee smell is blowing out the door. The amount of customers that I've acquired just from that because we're seen to be taking it seriously. We're seen to be doing something different. Um, and when people smell coffee, they want coffee. Yeah, well, it's interesting with that aroma. Because I think the more alluring aroma is actually when the coffee's been ground rather than being roasted per se. Yeah. But it still is communicating unequivocally. It's cooking. You're doing something special here. It's cook- yeah. yeah, you're cooking. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, people smell it, they see it, they get interested, and they go, oh, when are you open? You know, I tell them the yeah. hours because I'm yeah. there and I can talk to them and yeah. interact with them. And, you know, that it's a huge benefit to my business to be able to have that monstrous marketing tool which we call the bullet it'd be interesting to see where that goes for sure (laughs) interesting to see what that sounds like (laughs) Uh, it's funny though the most bizarre it's the most bizarre looking uh, what do you want wrap it up goodbye You've been listening to The Coffee Entrepreneur. Stay tuned for more episodes where we dive deeper into Instrada's book, The Coffee Entrepreneur, or from Instrada's life lessons, business lessons, and coffee wisdom. This episode has been brought to you by Espressology. Free The Coffee Entrepreneur.